0: Welcome to History Frogcast, a
1: production of the TCU History Department, where we put the life and times of horned frogs into their rightful place
0: in world history.
1: I'm about riff, ram, hell, TCU. Riff, ram, hell,
2: This is Frogcast, featuring your host, Brian Kim, and Walter Flanagan. In addition, this episode features a special guest with an exclusive interview.
0: You've all heard the story of Robert J. Oppenheimer in this summer's box office thriller by Christopher Nolan. But did you know one of our very own horned frogs worked on the project that changed the world, the Atomic bomb? Yes, you heard that right. Harrison
2: Miller Mosley, a physics major who graduated in 1943.
0: Harrison Miller Mosley was born in 1921 on a small farm in Dundee, Texas. When he was just seven years old though, his father passed away due to typhoid fever. Shortly after that, Mosley was sent to the Masonic home in Fort Worth where he would remain throughout his adolescent and teen years. In his time there, he competed on the Mighty Mites football team that reached the state playoffs in 1938. In that same year, Mosley graduated as the valedictorian from the Masonic School, earning himself a full ride to Texas Christian University. After excelling in a class taught by the chair of the physics department, Mosley got a job there and studied chemistry and physics before eventually graduating at the top of his class from TCU in 1943. He went on to pursue a graduate degree at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, where he met physicist Nathan Rosen. While Mosley was working with Rosen on separating isotopes for the U.S. Navy, Rosen was asked by Albert Einstein to join the Manhattan Project. Rosen brought Mosley along, and Mosley eventually joined the Naval Research Laboratory, where he worked on developing a thermal diffusion process for the uranium-235 isotope the type of enriched uranium used for the first atomic bomb. In a later interview with TCU Magazine, Mosley revealed, like many other members of the Manhattan Project, that he didn't even know he was working on the bomb at the time.
2: That's right. Mosley believed that he was just doing his job.
0: After the war, Mosley finished up his doctorate and taught physics and mathematics at TCU until his retirement in 1990. Mosley enjoyed a quaint retirement until his death in 2014.
2: Operating under the shadows of World War II, a global battle in the race to weaponize nuclear fission was also being waged. Nazi Germany had Werner Heisenberg and the Jürgenwettering Russia had created its Soviet nuclear program under Igor Kurchatov in 1943, and even England's Tube Alloys Project began exploring the viabilities of weaponizing uranium.
0: While the Allies were preparing for Normandy, and with Operation Barbarossa well underway, physicists and STEM experts were fighting a different battle. For the rest of the podcast, we'll discuss the origins of the Manhattan Project the reasoning behind the decision to use the bomb and the moral implications of that decision. And then finally, we'll dive into how the Manhattan Project helped to shape what we now call the Military-Industrial Complex. On September
2: 1942, President Roosevelt approved the Manhattan Project and appointed Brigadier General Leslie Groves to oversee the weapons
0: development. General Groves proceeded to assemble a team of premier physicists and chemists from various ethnic and political backgrounds. We talked to Dr. Satino, a senior historian at the National World War II Museum in New Orleans, about how the project was formed.
1: Much of the early theoretical work that led to the Manhattan Project that invented the atomic bomb was done in German-speaking Europe. You know, I, I think, so I guess the whole, the whole world knows about Albert Einstein, German Jewish citizen. You know, was no longer felt comfortable living in Nazi Germany for all the reasons you can imagine. Who left and 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 kind of got the ball rolling on on inventing a bomb. Um, so everyone knows Einstein. But you know, there's also there, there's the Danish physicist Niels Bohr, uh, who was one of the early uh, in, really important theoretical figures. There's an Italian Enrico Fermi, uh, uh, who also fled from uh, from Axis occupied Europe. So. That Central European trans or international corridor of scientists who are all working on the same project at more or less the same time. Now, what what they couldn't do is fund it. What they couldn't do is have the vast spaces in order to carry out the experiments and build the facilities that would be necessary. You know, we had some we built something in Hanford, Washington, Alamogordo, New Mexico, Oak Ridge, Tennessee, you know, spread it out on a map. And you're talking about much of, you know, CONUS, what the military calls the continental United States.
2: Political and cultural loyalties were certainly a factor in the moral dilemma. Robert Oppenheimer was a devoted leftist of Jewish descent, Enrico Fermi, an Italian immigrant, and Leo Zillard, Hungarian-American pragmatic physicist. General Groves received instructions directly from Secretary of War Henry Stimson, and I quote, to produce a bomb at the earliest possible date so as to bring the war to a conclusion. As a result of this urgency, the Manhattan Project was granted limitless resources and flexibility.
1: These are big, not just theories, but they were big physical projects, which had needed, you know, the kind of unlimited funding and space that the United States could devote to them.
0: So exactly how big was the Manhattan Project?
2: By the end of the war, the Manhattan Project had employed over 130,000 workers and had spent a staggering 2.2 billion dollars in addition universities across the country such as the University of Chicago the University of California at Berkeley and Columbia University housed significant portions of research for this project as well this leads us to wonder how the Manhattan project was highly classified with only select individuals involved in its
0: operations despite the grand effort and scale we asked our special guest dr satino about the project's confidentiality
1: democracy is based upon the open exchange of ideas opinions the the, the clash of views out of which hopefully some kind of workable synthesis and uh, you know will arise so you know not only did most americans not know anything about the manhattan project until they read about it in the paper the day after uh, hiroshima you know, the president of the United States, I'm speaking of the second wartime president, Harry Truman, Harry S. Truman, who took over after Roosevelt's death in the spring of 1945. He knew nothing about the Manhattan Project when he came into the Oval Office. One of his first briefings had to be, hey, we got this bomb. We don't know if it's going to work yet, but we spent a you know bazillion dollars or whatever the equivalent was in 1945. And we think it's going to work. And it it really might have some implications, not only for ending the war, But for the post-war years...
0: Even as the president continued to invest substantial resources in the Manhattan Project, Congress had never officially approved the use of those funds. In fact, they had not even been informed about the Manhattan Project at all. In the book, The Most Controversial Decision, Truman, The Atomic
2: Bombs, and the Defeat of Japan, Dr. Wilson Miss Campbell states that the decision to use the weapon against Japan was decided at one secret meeting between two heads of state, Churchill and FDR, at the Hyde Park meeting in September 1944.
0: On July 16, 1945, the atomic bomb was successfully tested in Alamogordo, New Mexico.
2: Oppenheimer's infamous words now i have become death the shatterer of worlds reflects the apocalyptic and despairing frame of mind that the scientists must have felt after witnessing the bomb's destruction members of the manhattan project who had witnessed its testing quickly dissented on its future use in the book the most controversial decision historian dr miss campbell states The executive decision-making boiled down to, and I quote, there was no debate over whether to
0: use the bomb when it became available. The question was how. Leo Szilard and 155 other scientists in the Manhattan Project petitioned President Truman to reconsider the moral and geopolitical consequences of the use of the bomb. But their efforts would fall silent. As on August 6, 1945, The first atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima, then a second one three days later in Nagasaki.
2: Brought to its knees, Japan would formally surrender less than a month later, marking an end to World War II.
0: Both scholars and the general public still argue over whether the use of the bomb at this point in the war was actually necessary. Japan was clearly on the retreat, with Russians engaging in Manchuria and American B-29 bombers constantly harassing the home islands.
2: We turned to two historians, Dr. Ms. Campbell and Dr. Citino, to explain the various historical arguments on the operational, geopolitical, and moral justifications for the use of the bombs. In his book, the most controversial decision, Dr. Ms. Campbell argues that Americans must appreciate that all the alternate scenarios to secure victory, including continuous bombing raids, a choking blockade, and an amphibious assault on the mainland of Japan, would have meant a significantly greater number of casualties for both American forces and Japanese military and civilian personnel. During our interview, Dr. Sutino, characterizes the public opinion at the time that corresponds
1: um they're convinced the the american public the majority of the american public is convinced that if we had invaded the japanese home islands we would have taken a million casualties and then who would be apologizing and then harry truman's gonna go to the american people and say well we had a bomb decided not to use it and a million of your sons got killed there'd be there'd be a revolution
2: Dr. Miss Campbell further explains this stance in his book that in March 1958, Truman told Tsukasa Nitoguri, the chairman of the Hiroshima City Council, that the atomic bombs prevented a quarter of a million Japanese deaths in an invasion. To expand, Allied forces had conducted ferocious bombing raids on both military and civilian targets, in which an estimated 337,000 Japanese civilians were killed. Historians offer the view of the public opinion during that time, who argues that the long-term implications justified the use of the bomb. These implications being the greater preservation of American and Japanese lives in avoiding the war's continuation and as a deterrent for future aggressors. In addition, Conventional wisdom can overlook the regional ethnic states that would have continued to suffer under a prolonged imperial Japanese occupation. Dr. Miss Campbell describes this travesty in his book, and I quote, The losses in Hiroshima and Nagasaki absurdly were horrific, but they pale in significance when compared to the estimates of 17 to 24 million deaths attributed to the Japanese during their rampage from Manchuria to New Guinea. Despite these views on the Manhattan Project's contributions to the saving of countless human lives, during that time, the public was unaware and thus neglected the Japanese perspectives on their military rationale, future diplomatic climate, and sovereign ethical considerations.
0: After World War II, atomic weaponry became a controversial tool for political leverage throughout the Cold War. In her book, Why America Fights, Patriotism and War Propaganda from the Philippines to Iraq, Susan Brewer references a poll of Americans' opinions on using the bomb during the Korean War. According to the poll, 45% of Americans favored the use of the bomb in the Korean War. 7% wanted to consider it as a last resort, and 10% had no opinion on its use.
2: During the 1950s, when the public became more aware and invaded by the ideas of atomic weapons, popular culture reflected the various attitudes and perspectives people had towards the bomb.
0: Songs such as When They Dropped the Atomic Bomb by Jackie Dahl and his Pickled Peppers highlight how a portion of the society found the use of atomic weapons necessary in some instances.
2: There will soon be an end to this cold and
0: wicked war When
2: those hard-headed communists
0: get what they're looking for
2: Only one thing that will stop them
0: and their atrocious fun
2: If General MacArthur drops a Atomic
0: bomb. Clearly, some people trusted General MacArthur's judgment on whether to use nuclear weapons, despite how devastating they could be.
2: Other songs exhibit some people's anxiety towards the current and future use of the bomb.
1: Crawl out through the fallout, baby, when they drop that bomb. Crawl out through the fallout with the greatest of aplomb. When your white count's getting higher, hurry, don't delay. I'll hold you close and kiss those radiation burns away.
0: These lyrics indicate some of the ways people used music and satire to help deal with the anxieties of living in the nuclear age. We talked to Dr. Satino about the complex range of factors people consider when forming their opinions about the moral implications of atomic weaponry.
1: Here's something I heard too. My dad was a World War II veteran and he said something like, well, I'd have been killed. (laughs) We were gonna invade Japan and I probably wouldn't have made it through the war. Dr.
0: Satino explained that in the context of growing tensions between the United States and Soviet Union after World War II, some scholars have speculated that Truman dropped the bomb as a signal to the Soviet Union that the United States had a claim to geopolitical hegemony.
1: Uh, starting in the late 50s, especially the 60s, right, the great decade of dissent in, in American history, especially in the 60s, a lot of voices were raised that this was excessive, that perhaps <laughs> we knew the Japanese were beaten, but we wanted to show the Soviet Union how this bomb would work. And in case the Soviets had any plans to get too frisky in the post-1945 world, they could know that we had this, you know, we had this wonder weapon. I right? was just, it was unlike anything that had ever been invented before.
2: After the bombings on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, President Truman displayed internal resentment towards the effects of the bomb, particularly for the innocent lives. However, when confronted by public critics, President Truman remained firm on his decision, vowing to never use it again unless they can't help it. Truman understood that there was no going back and that the atomic bomb had completely changed the dynamics of international relations. During President Eisenhower's farewell address in 1961, he famously said,
1: In the councils of government, We must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex.
2: So how did the Manhattan Project shape as what we call today the military-industrial complex?
1: World
0: War II and the Manhattan Project demonstrated the capacity and capabilities
1: of American industry. Well, you know, it's easy to say that the Manhattan Project invented the military-industrial complex. That there's a military end in mind, and you and funding is virtually unlimited. There's a, a number you can put on the on the Manhattan Project. It's about two billion dollars. As a matter of fact, it's, you can put a number on it. But let's say funding is essentially unlimited, um, and and so are resources. And you know, that's the that's the dream of any scientist. You know, I want to do my thing, and I I don't want to say oh, I'm out of money. I don't want to say oh, I can't oh, get this. I can't get a high grade centrifuge or whatever it is that you need to do research in, in these fields. So it kind of invented the military industrial complex as exists today, highly complex, vast projects, different people and groups and industries working on various portions of it. And hopefully there's a very good project manager overseeing the whole thing who prevents it from, you know, from, from being too, uh, too dramatic on the cost overrun side.
0: Since then, The Department of Defense has become increasingly involved with civilian sector companies to develop weapons, systems, and technology over the past decades. Today, top research universities and think tanks have become powerful tools for the government in accessing intellectual properties and advancements. As you heard today, the Manhattan Project involved the world's greatest minds, including one of our very own Horned Frogs. Mosley's involvement and whereabouts during the project demonstrate the moral complexities of the atomic bomb. The formation of the team, the decision to drop the bomb, and future justifications exist within a complex interplay between moral dilemmas and geopolitical factors.
2: Even after discussing the bomb's development, aftermath, and involvement with the military-industrial complex, moral debates continue. To be argued among scholars, politicians, and the public. In closing, we asked our special guest, Dr. Citino, one last question. Do you have any any final final thoughts and
1: uh my best to my best to Dr. Vuick, who is one of my dearest friends in the profession, and go horn frogs.
2: <laughs> All right, thank you so much.
0: All right, thanks, Brian. That's it for today, folks. We'd like to thank our special guest, Dr. Satino, for his gracious time and contribution, and for the audience for listening to this episode of Frogcast. Where do soldiers go when there's no one left to fight? School, of course. In the next episode, Keith and Griffin will explain why TCU needed barracks on campus in the 1940s to house the surge of World War II veterans. Stay tuned for another exciting episode. Of Frogcast.
1: TCU
2: Riff Ram Riff Ram. Give 'em hell TCU.
0: Until next time, CCU, Riff Ram, y'all.
1: TCU Riff Ram.